What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. Okay, you know, like at camps and stuff like this, you take the ball out. You ain't getting the ball back. <laughs> like, you the last one up the court. They already did their thing. So I stopped there, and I just got into a rhythm and started hooping. The Lakers should sign Trey Young this summer. They got to kind of start preparing for, like, if LeBron's last year is this year or next year, whenever it is. And I feel like a uh, pick and roll with AD and a guy like Trey Young would be deadly. Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. AT&T connects an ode to podcast. Connect the alarm, change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze, 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Welcome to All The Smoke, a production of The Black Effect and Our Heart Radio, in partnership with Showtime. Welcome back, man. Season two of All The Smoke. We got a real special guest. What's up with your Brody with the virtual handshake? I'm going to tell y'all something that I never told nobody. I want All The Smoke. Welcome back, All The Smoke, season two, with a very special guest today. Uh, Steven Jackson had to attend to a family emergency, so he won't be with us today. But I have my former coach... Uh, mentor, someone I look up to in this space, Steve Kerr. Welcome to the show. Matt, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for your time. You just told me, I didn't know, but you guys are out there in the Bay Area in your bubble right now practicing. How's that going? It's going well. You know, we were obviously one of the eight teams that, that didn't qualify for Orlando. And so some of that was a positive. I mean, let's be honest, the type of season we had, we didn't really want to go down <laughs> to Orlando, sit in a hotel room for a month and, and, and play meaningless games. Uh, on the other hand, as we watched uh, all those teams playing and we were not able to get together ourselves and practice, we realized how quickly we were falling behind. So, you know, all eight teams now uh, have been given this space by the league. And so everybody's doing an in-market bubble. So we're in San Francisco. We're just going back and forth from the hotel to our facility. And, and we're getting getting good work in. And um, it's been really productive. So, um, you know, trying to make the best of the situation. How long do you guys actually are in this, this, uh, this bubble? It's, it's two weeks. Um, and it's... Um, it's it, totally voluntary um you know this was not something that was required um so we have uh, most of our guys here steph and draymond are not they both had family stuff that they needed to tend to but we've got the rest of the group uh, clay is here andrew wiggins all of our young players from last year and then we've got some players from our g league team as well and the, the biggest thing honestly matt is just the guys getting to play five on five for the first time mm -hmm. 
in like six months. I mean, it, it's been a long time. So just to feel the contact and the joy of playing basketball again has been really good for, for yes. everybody. How's Clay looked? I mean, obviously the world's been waiting on his comeback. I, I love that he got to actually take the adequate amount of time because I feel like too often as players were rushed back or, you know, the, the game is calling us or the team needs us back. Clay got to take the right amount of time to recover and we'll have a, we'll, we'll see a, a healthy Clay Thompson next year. How's he been with this kind of being his first run, first contact in a long time? Yeah, Clay's looked great. And, and I've seen him a couple of times during the uh, quarantine in Orange County. And uh, so I've watched him work out over the last few months a couple of times and and kept up to up to speed with him. So I was already aware that he was doing well and, and uh, feeling really good. But this is just the kind of the next natural step, you know, to be on the floor with nine other guys. Right. And so it, it's been really good for me. He looks great. Um, his rhythm and his timing aren't there, but um, that that's there's no way that, that it would be given that right. he's been off for a year and a half. But he's healthy. He's feeling good. And it's been great to have him in the building. And, and obviously just thinking about next season with him, with Steph, with Draymond, with Andrew Wiggins, you know, we we can start to think about having a good team again. Yeah, that's going to be good. We'll get back to basketball a little bit. We're going to, you know, start with some other stuff. Uh, obviously, we're in a crazy time right now in our country. You've been someone I've admired from a standpoint of you haven't let your position of who you are hold back your true feelings. You've always been very outspoken and passionate when you speak. Obviously, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of, I don't even know what we want to call it, uh, a change, hopefully for the better. For our country, like I said, you've always been someone outspoken. Obviously, I think your past, and we'll get into your past, but I think your past has helped you be uh, very confident in who you are and what you speak about. Where did that come from as far as, hey, you know, I'm going to speak my mind regardless if I'm the head coach of the Golden State Warriors or I'm just a man on the street? Well, it's a good question. Um, I think I've always felt... Um a responsibility, just a conviction inside to to try to do the right thing and say the right thing. But I, I never really said much politically uh, when I was playing. But then again, nobody really asked either. You know, it was a different time, uh, different the 90s, time, right. totally different era. Um, I do remember speaking out against the Iraq war when I played for the Spurs living in San Antonio and that was not a popular position to take. And it was kind of my first uh, sort of foray into public protest. And, uh, you know, San Antonio has five military bases. Um, you know, f f military influence in that town is, is really, really uh, important. And so to, to, you know, make my feelings known about the war was um, not an easy thing because I, I wanted people to know that my my words had nothing to do with the military they just had everything to do with humanity and and um you know where where things were heading and um so that was kind of my first time where i felt uncomfortable um but but knowing that i was speaking out in the right way and right. so that gave me a little feel for what what was to come and um mm -hmm. i think now we're obviously in a totally different era where um the times are really calling for people to speak out. And, and we all have this enormous platform given the state of media, social media. As coaches, you know, on a, on a typical road game, I do three media sessions a day. That's um, insane, you know. So I'm getting questions every day on politics and, you know, social issues. So um, it's now it seems almost 
part of the job, really. Synonymous, right? They go hand in hand now. And, and for so long, it was mm-hmm. stick, to, stick to sports and politics and sports don't mix. But I completely agree with you. I think they go hand in hand now. And I... I, one also who speak out, but I, I think, like you said, it's people with platforms and who have a voice that travel. And obviously, you know, through our careers, we've been able to, you know, build this platform that has allowed us to, when we speak, people listen. So we're obviously in tune with other things outside of our profession, such as politics, such as family, such as there's, a, there's so many more facets to who we are as human beings. We're not just athletes. So... I applaud you at the position you take and the stance you take and and really the vulnerability you put yourself in speaking out on issues, like you said, that aren't always politically correct, I guess, but they're socially and morally correct. Mm, yeah, I, I think that's the key. I mean, um, you, you've got to feel in your heart and you've got you, you to have a conviction. And, and then ultimately, the most important thing is to have uh, real knowledge to the, to go with it, you know the education Absolutely. of what you're speaking of, and and um, I think that's what I've really tried to do over the last say four months when with this um, social movement, this uh, movement for racial justice really uh, heating up, um, and given the time off that we've had. I've just been trying to educate myself and, and read as much as I can about um, racism. I've read some incredible books um, that have taught me so much and helped me realize that the reality is, even though I've always kind of felt like I was educated and open-minded, I was pretty ignorant to a lot of what uh, black Americans face. You know, I really was. I've been playing with... with uh, Black teammates and friends since I was, you know, in junior high, growing up in Los Angeles and in integrated schools. And yet I felt over the last few months, you know, kind of humiliated, like, oh, my God, how do how do I not know about Black Wall Street? You know, how do I not know about some of these uh, awful, awful times in our history uh, where uh, the black community has just been uh, devastated by uh, by violence, by um, all kinds of uh, horrific acts that nobody taught us in school, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's what's been most eye-opening for me is just the realization that um, we are all, um, when I say we, I mean white people, we're all blind to a lot of this stuff, and it's it's on us to learn and to understand and to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and un- yes. and understand what's what's happening and why and what can we do to change it. I think you hit it on the head too because it's not taught. So I mean, you have to really go out there and search and look and, and try to educate yourself and, and the ability to open your mind up enough to not only be present within yourself and what you have going on, but the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes because as a white man, you can learn as much as you want, but you'll never understand the feeling that a black person will go to. But all we want you guys to do is try to understand. You know what I mean? And I think there's, I think there's been a turn, there's been a shift in the paradigm where people are actually willing to do that now because of the George Floyd situation. Unfortunately, normally when African-Americans are gunned down by law enforcement, it's a shot and they're dead. And I think for eight and a half, almost nine minutes, almost the time of an NBA quarter, we watched a man suffer and call for his mother and plead for his life. And I think that really pulled on the heartstrings of America. And, and it really started opening up 
people's eyes and making people realize that, you know, hey, there's a real issue in this country and, and now is the time to address it. Um, I feel we're still going through it, but I definitely feel like we're going to turn the corner and good things are coming, but it takes things like what you're doing uh, to educate yourself and then not only educate yourself, but then spread what you're learning. You know what I mean? Like I said, I, uh, you do a great job of utilizing your platform to speak what you've learned. Um, fast forward to the NBA bubble. How do you feel like the NBA did be able to create an environment, a safe environment, not only for the players, but then also for the players to continue to carry their, their messages uh, through social justice and the initiatives that the NBA has put upon their shoulders to try to help you know, be a small part of change. Yeah, I thought the league has did a really good job of, um, first of all, creating a safe environment. And um, you know, the, the bubble, uh, by really every measure, has been a resounding success. And the first thing I do is, is um, give credit to the players and coaches and administrators who are down there and who have been there for you know, over three months now. Uh, if, you know, if you look at the Lakers and the Heat, I mean, the sacrifice that all those players, those organizations are making for the rest of us to keep the league going, I want to make sure I, I reference that because it's uh, it's been hugely important for the league to be able to put games on TV and to, to entertain our fans and keep things going. Um, from a racial justice standpoint, uh, the, the great thing with the NBA is that I, I think the players have always felt the support, maybe not always, but in the last um, you know period of time, um, decade, couple of decades, the players and coaches have felt the support of um, the league management in large part. You know, we've been really led in a powerful way by Adam Silver. Um, you know, his very first act as commissioner mm. was was kicking. We were we were all part of that. Out. Yeah, right. we were we were in the playoffs when that happened, which is insane. But that, it was a huge first step. A lot, you know, for that to be your first issue, and he handled it swiftly and and gracefully. It was beautiful, and it and it felt empowering. Um, and I, you know, I I can't I can only speak as a as a white man, but I I was proud that to be part of a league that said, okay, like we're going to really address this stuff, and we're going to support our players and our coaches. Um, so I think going into the bubble, you know, there's that uh, foundation that's already there where there's a trust level uh, between the players and, and management. Um, not that everything's perfect, but I think there's a trust level. Now, fast forward to the Jacob Blake shooting and the players kind of throw their hands up and say, we can't do this anymore. Um, my take on that as I sat at home, obviously I was not in the bubble, um, I just sensed an incredible frustration of a, a group of players who had dedicated this entire season to the Black Lives Matter movement, to social and racial equity and justice, using their their platforms to spread the message throughout the, the this time. And then same old thing, just black man getting shot by, by cops seven times uh, in front of his family. And Combined with the fact that these guys had already been in Orlando for a couple of months away from their families, it's like, to me, it just looked like everybody threw their hands up and said, we can't, we can't do this. Like, we can't just right. perform for your entertainment and not see 
real change. Right. And and so last thing, and I'm rambling a little bit, but I think this is important. I, I think the reason that was an important time, Matt, was that the players missed a couple of games. They sat out and they said, we're not playing. And they they used that as leverage to get some concessions from the owners in terms yep. of opening up arenas for, for voting centers. And um, I think there were some financial considerations in terms of donating money to, to social causes. To me, the reason this is so important is that the, what can really change things is corporate America deciding to jump on board this train Absolutely. and putting their money where their mouth is and changing policy, changing um, the way we police, the way we go about our business, the way we protect each other. Um, it has to come from rich white people, to be perfectly blunt. Absolutely. Rock the vote. In your opinion, how important is it for you and to everyone else to not only vote on the federal level, but the local and state level as well? Yeah, it's huge. And, and um, you know, I've, I've read all the stats. I mean, young people generally don't vote. You know, it's uh, it, the, the, the numbers are, are, are staggering. And... Um, I think it's like one in five, you know, between the ages of 18 and 30 um, in the last election, if that actually voted. Um, and yet the future of our country is at stake. And, and so because of this movement, because there's so many young people really of, of, of every race um, and background who are so invested in this movement, uh, they got to back it up. You know, they have to back it, back it up and show up at the polls Um and uh, help create the change that, that that they're calling for, and it can only happen if they if they get out and vote. All right, absolutely. Um, you had a very unique upbringing um, with your father moving around. Uh, you know, had spent some time in Beirut, Egypt, France, Tanzania. What was it like as a young child growing up in so many different cultures? Uh, it was a real blessing, although I didn't realize it at the time, Matt. You know, I, my dad was a professor at UCLA, and um, I just wanted to live in L.A. and and go to UCLA basketball games and, you know, play play sports with my friends. And then my dad would, would uh, come home and he'd say, all right, we're going to, you know, pack up the VW van and, and uh, put it on a boat to... Egypt and, you know, we're going to go live mm -hmm. in Egypt for the next two years. And when wow. you're 10 years old, right. like, what? We're doing <laughs> what? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so not right. exactly something that, that thrilled me at the time, but I look back on it, it was the best education I ever could have had um, to live in in Cairo for three years, um, also in uh, in France. It was actually Tunisia, not Tanzania, but uh, oh, excuse uh, the, me, yeah. the, that's that's yeah. all right. The point the point the point is the same. It's living in a different culture, totally different part of the world. It just gives you an entirely different perspective on life and and it gives you an empathy for other people and um, and an awareness that, you know, um, we all come from different places but we're we're basically all looking for the same thing. We get, you know, all these political and racial differences get in our way and suddenly uh, you've got horrible inequities and atrocities happening and it's insane because we're all just, we're all just flesh and blood. And Absolutely. I think getting that perspective as a kid was, was really important for me. Through that process, where did basketball fit in? Is that where you found, when did you find your passion for the game and who were some of the people you looked up to in the game? 
Well, my, uh, I was a Bruin at heart. I know you like that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, but my first game was at Poly Pavilion. I was five years old, and Bill Walton was playing for UCLA. And, wow. And, uh, and so I, I was, I was raised during that heyday when UCLA was winning mm-hmm. year after year and John Wooden was was the coach and and so to, to that's where I fell in love with the game uh, you know walking into Poly Pavilion for the first time and hearing the band play and watching the team and every seat was filled and the the crowd noise and the energy it was just invigorating and and uh, that's that's where I fell in love with it and then I played all sports you know like we we did back then I know you you played uh, mm-hmm. baseball and football and mm-hmm. I did the same and and so I just played played sports all the time but basketball was my favorite and when I was overseas I was able to play that was one one of the good things about basketball was that you know people played basketball in in Egypt they didn't play mm-hmm. uh, baseball or football so that that helped I, I just was had an outdoor hoop at our school and Played on the school team, and you know, uh, it was it was fun. Yeah, finishing up your high school career in California, not very highly recruited. You end up at Arizona as part of Lute Olson's first recruiting class. What was that like playing for such a legendary coach? Obviously, we lost him not, not too long ago. Uh, rest in peace, to coach. What was that experience like being a part of his class, going to you know wanting to go to UCLA, ending up at Arizona, and then having a successful career at Arizona? Yeah, it was sort of unexpected. Um, you know, I, I finished my senior season without a scholarship offer, and uh, I didn't really know what I was going to do. So uh, it, it, everything kind of happened at the last second, and um, it turned into the break of my lifetime because uh, to go to Arizona and learn from from Coach Olson, um, and then to you know he built the program so quickly. Um, so within a few years, I was playing with NBA players like Sean Elliott and. And uh, Judd Bushler and and Sean Rooks and I mean we 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 were we were loaded. Tom Tolbert, Kenny Lofton was on our team who went on and had a, a, an uh-huh. amazing big league career. And so Lute built this incredible program quickly. And and so to be part of it and to learn from him and and to have the foundation upon which the rest of my life has been built was just the ultimate gift. So I will forever be uh, thankful for. Coach Olson and what what he meant to my life. Do you apply anything, most likely, that you learn from him to your coaching style you have now? I do, I do. I think um, I've probably taken a little something from all the coaches that that I've uh, played for, uh, but from from him, it was you know there was such a an environment of you know this is something special, like you're part of something special. And you felt that the first day you walked in and he made it feel that way through the work, through the mission that we were on, through the, the family vibe that, that was there. Um, and so I, I think I've taken that. I, I, I always want players who come to the Warriors to feel like they're part of something special. And um, that's how coach that's how coach approached it. Absolutely. Your father accepts a role as president of American University in 82. Um, Unfortunately, January of 1984, uh, still while you're at Arizona, uh, your father is killed. How did that tragedy impact you being thousands of miles away and then also obviously impact your family? Yeah, so he... uh he was one of the early uh, victims of uh, terrorism during you know this age of terrorism that we're in. It really began um, kind of in the late 70s um, with the um, 
hostage situation in Iran at the American embassy. And then, you know, the early 80s, there were various, um, you know, hijackings and uh, kidnappings and mm-hmm. uh, bombings and, in the Middle East. And, and, um, and so my dad was, uh, was, was killed by uh, gunmen, two gunmen after, outside of his office. I was 18 at the time, um, freshman year at Arizona, and, and uh, you know, just crushed me, just destroyed me. And... Um, I was really close with my dad. I have three siblings. We were all really, really uh, close. And, and um, you know, it's hard to hard to know how to function when something like that happens uh, because you, you know, I suppose uh, a lot of us just live in a little cocoon growing up. If, mm-hmm. you know, assuming things go well for us as, as a child like they did for me, I, you know, I was pretty innocent and, you know, didn't think anything like that would happen to me. And, and uh so when it did, it was devastating. But um, you know, I'm I'm proud of my family. Everybody, you know, really stuck together. My siblings, my mom, everybody has has you know moved on and and with their lives and done really well. And we uh, think about our dad every day. And um, but you know, you keep you keep moving, you keep moving forward. I lost my mom um, 2007 to cancer. Um, what role? Did basketball play for you in, in, in helping you not necessarily get over, but try to, you know, start life yeah. after your father? Yeah, I think it was uh, it was my sanctuary for sure. You know, just going to the gym, and um, you know, I remember about about a few days after uh, uh, my dad died, we had a game, and um, actually the next day I went to practice. You know, and Coach Olson said, are you sure you want to practice? And I said, what else would I want to be doing, you know? Um, and it wasn't like some heroic act. It was just, what else do you do? Um, right. You know, you're just at home and you're sitting there, you're thinking about everything. It's uh, it's a miserable time. And, and so to get on the court for a couple of hours and lose yourself in the game and, and be with your friends and and you know, feel the endorphin kick of, of you know, intense energy and, and uh, exercise. It, it all helps. It's very therapeutic. And it, it, you know, people might think it sounds insensitive, but it's really not. It's, it's just part of, part of that process of immediate uh, grief, you know, that right. the, the, the game was like the, the one thing during the day that I could look forward to. Yeah, that was that was the same. I played two days after my mom passed, and to like you said, lose yourself for that two and a half hours to just something you love. Although every time yeah. there was a foul call or a whistle was blown, you you know you obviously revert back to missing your father, to missing my mom. But basketball was a huge part, and obviously my support system, which was my team with the Golden State Warriors at the time, with that we believe team, was tremendous, and and in kind of you know being a shoulder to lean on, and and allowing me to be okay yeah. to grieve and, and, and be those people you needed them to be it was it was a special experience but like I said I really think basketball helped me transition through that point in my life well your teammates become a, a family uh, for yes. sure especially you know a team like that I mean you know I, I remember I was in broadcasting at the time and I did I did some of your games and and I remember you going through that loss and I remember um you know just um uh, and of course, we knew each other already because right. you had been in Phoenix uh, mm-hmm. before that uh, when I was uh, in management with the Suns. And and so I was, 
you know, just feeling for you and, and watching you and, and just um, knowing exactly what you were going through because right. I went through the same thing. But that game and your teammates, that's what you have to rely on. Absolutely. Um, how special was that uh, 88 Final Four team you guys had? You name and same the guy, Sean Elliott, uh, Kenny Lofton, Tom Tolbert. Anthony Cook, a young Jed Bushler. What was it? What was that experience like? Uh, I think uh, Kansas with Danny Manning won the championship that year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we lost to Oklahoma in the Final Four. It's the one game, Matt. Honestly, that I still think about to this day. I, I don't think wow. about. I don't think about any of the good ones. I really don't. I only I only think about that one because <laughs> I played so poorly and uh, I shot two for thirteen. Not Oof. that I, you know, have kept track. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was so painful because um, we had a, we had an incredible team. So did Oklahoma, and they they were fantastic, and they beat us. And then Kansas, as you said, they upset them in the finals. But I think about that game still. The season was so special. Those guys remain uh, my best friends to this day. The guys from that team, and um, you know, we still have that that bond that's going to exist forever. So I've been lucky just to not only be on great teams, but be on teams that just were really close, you know, and, and where I made really good friends and so much fun to stay in touch with old teammates, absolutely. you know, just touch Over base the with them. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. When, this is a two-part question. When did the NBA become reality? And then once you made it, when did you feel like you found your footing in the NBA and you felt like you belonged? Man, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it, it really didn't become a reality to me. I guess I realized my senior year in college that maybe I had a chance, um, and I got drafted. It was the last pick in the second round by the Suns, and when I made the team, it, it didn't feel like I was really there yet. I just was on the end of the roster. So the next few years, I got traded to Cleveland, played for Lenny Wilkins, who was a, a fantastic coach. We had really good teams with Mark Price and Brad Doherty, and Larry Nance, Craig Elo. Uh, Ron Harper, um, and I found my footing uh, for for a couple seasons during that time. You know, I had a had a couple good years, but but I was really still a fringe guy for most of my career. And uh, to be honest, I'm not sure I ever felt 100 percent comfortable that I belonged. You know, I, I and maybe that's what drove me. I always just kind of felt like, you know, I could get cut at any time, and so. As a result, I, I put in the work and I competed and um, and I just kept sticking around and um, and yeah, I ended up playing 15 years, which is sort of shocking. Um, I still can't believe that that my career lasted that long, but uh, now I, I was uh, I was fortunate and and uh, kind of ended up on in the right place at the right time in a lot of cases. Absolutely. Uh, with Chicago, you end up in Chicago in '93. Uh, you guys go on a three-peat run from 96 to 98. Obviously, with the last dance being such a huge success and winning a lot of awards, what do you remember from that time? Obviously, I'm sure that refreshed you a lot. Were there things that you saw that are like, that shit didn't happen that way, or things you completely forgot? What was yeah. that experience like kind of going? Because you guys missed the social media generation, you know? So this that was almost like us being able to see a social media version of you and Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen mm -hmm. and Phil and Dennis mm -hmm. and all the stuff you guys went through. What was it like just sitting back, like, watching stuff that happened over 20 years ago? Well, it was really fun uh, because, you know, at the time, they didn't have all the sort of hard knocks 
style shows, you know, um, with teams. Like nobody was allowed behind the scenes. Yeah, no behind the scenes at all. Nothing, nothing. Like even NBA entertainment, you know, they might be allowed in the locker room during the championship celebration, but you'd never see a camera in a team meeting. Um, you know, you'd never, you know how now like, you know, let's let's listen in on Frank Vogel during his halftime speech during the playoffs. Never. Like, that's <laughs> never, ne- never, never. <laughs> right. Um, right. So when Phil told us that the cameras were going to be behind the scenes and, you know, why he was allowing it. It was kind of shocking. And then seeing all those guys every day was really weird. The first month it was, you just felt so exposed. And um, I'm still not sure it was a great idea. Um, I don't think I would allow it as a coach. I I think think it's, you're opening yourself up to a lot of potential problems. Uh, But I'm really glad that, that it happened because now, you know, to watch it 22 years later, especially with my kids who were mm-hmm. babies at the time, you know, um, and now they're all grown up. So to, to watch with them and for them to see kind of what life was like for me back then was, was really fun. What was it like? I mean, I'm sure this is a common question playing with Mike. Um, you know, we heard you guys had your differences at times, but just overall, um, him as a teammate, him as a competitor, and is there a friendship there? Is there a friendship there? There's a, there's a, there's a mutual respect that okay. uh, that exists, and uh, we don't really stay in touch, um, but we see each other maybe once or twice a year, whether it's at uh, at a game in Charlotte or All Star Weekend or you know, maybe a golf tournament or something in Lake Tahoe. Like we've, we've, we just seem to run into each other once in a while because we're kind of, you know, traveling the same circuit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there's always, it's always a great reunion. You know, he's, um, it's so much fun to, to kind of relive, uh, those days and to, to ask about, you know, our teammates and talk about, um, you know, the, the good times back then and being his teammate was hard. Um, you know, he he was really tough on everybody um, because his whole philosophy was he 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 had to toughen us up to get us ready for um, the playoffs and the finals. And um, so he he came after us, and you had to you had to stand up to him. You had to sort of survive the the MJ test, you know. And and the guys who who survived it, um, he had immense respect for him, and so. You know, people know about the fight I got into him, that we got into uh, together. And um, that was just about him kind of testing me. And Mm -hmm. uh, and I probably the best thing I ever did was not, you know, not take his his crap and, you know, stood back up and he respected it. And we got along ever since. So all good. That was a similar, you know, obviously we weren't teammates at the time. But like I said, I think getting a chance to play against Kobe for so long. And he'll test you mentally, physically, mm-hmm. obviously as an opponent. Um, but then, you know, it came to a, to a head in the in the 2009, 2010 situation with the ball fake. And, you know, we almost ended up fighting at that point. But what a lot of people didn't know was at the end of that season, he personally called me. I didn't even have his number. For some reason, I just picked up and it was him. He's just like, you know, anyone crazy enough to fuck with me is crazy enough to play with me. Do you, <laughs> do, do you want to be a Laker? 
And, yeah. you know, similar. You know what I mean? Like, the great ones will test, and they want guys that are, aren't going to back down from anything. And obviously, you mm -hmm. earned Mike's respect through that, and then you guys went on to win some championships. Him coming back um, in 95, you guys losing to Orlando, and then coming out and having that tremendous 96 season where you guys go 72-10. and 10. What was that like? I mean, to lose 10 games, and then obviously, as a coach, <laughs> you surpass that record which no one thought would ever be broken but as a player in the in in that moment what was that time like it was incredible matt because um none of us had ever experienced anything like it but you know the fact that michael had left the game for a couple of years just completely recharged him between him having a full off season to prepare and being recharged and motivated and then dennis coming aboard from the Spurs during a, an off-season trade. We were just revitalized, the whole whole franchise. And I remember the media asking us about possibly winning 70 before the season started. And we were all, you got to be kidding me. Nobody's going to win 70. And yet we just blitz teams right out of the gate. And I think we were 41 and three at one point. It was like, Jeez. we were just looking at each other. Like, this is this is insane. This doesn't happen. But it was that perfect storm because of his absence and because of Dennis's arrival and just this amazing energy that existed uh, and Phil's genius as, as our coach, just the way it all happened. And, and by the way, Scottie Pippen was one of the great basketball players in the league at the time. Absolutely. It was an amazing, amazing run. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Sixth Man of the Year, elite bucket getter. Let's please welcome Jamal Crawford to Point Game. King of the Court one-on-one -on -one tournament. If they had it back in your prime, do you think he could have took it all? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I could have took it all. But I think I would have shocked a lot of people. I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe would win a one-on-one -on -one contest. Yeah, I, yeah, because you got to think, Love he's going to guard. He don't care about guarding. He's going to guard. He's going to exactly. guard. Like, you see him in the Olympics, he's going to guard. And then on I'm top of that. like that, see that? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Cassell to Point Game. I remember you came out from crying tears. <laughs> crying tears. I mean, he was in a culture shock. He's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember what I told you? I said, I said, OG, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college because he didn't need it? <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. How do we level the playing field for all entrepreneurs? 55% of white businesses survive the startup phase, while only 4% of black businesses do the same. So I want every black entrepreneur to know about the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative. The 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale 1 million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field, from free business coaching to tailored training and extended free Shopify trial. Shopify's made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The 1 million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Here at Drink Champs, we are always interacting with our listeners, many being black entrepreneurs. 
Shopify is one of those platforms that empowers and emboldens entrepreneurship. So chart your own path for business success with the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash B-E-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-E-N. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. What was it like with Dennis? You saw stuff and it, it fucking blew me away <laughs> when he left for Vegas and Phil being Phil. I got an opportunity. I got a chance to play for Phil his last year before he announced to us he had cancer and he was going to step away from the game. And when I tell people like that's what I saw in you when I came to Golden State was Phil implemented his system as you did, and then you kind of take a step back, and you're not the rah-rah unless you have to cuss someone out. You're not the, you trust the players you put out there to allow us to create and play the game and see the game through our eyes. What was it like, kind of a two-part, first of all, what was Dennis like, and then playing mm -hmm. for someone like Phil Jackson? Well, it's a good question because the, the way Phil coached Dennis really um, was was the key to, to everything. Um, and and it and it really informed me about what coaching was about, you know, because Phil demanded certain things of Dennis and then got out of his way. And I saw how powerful that was. Um, you know, the idea of giving someone a vision and then letting them go, and then occasionally reining them back in, show them the vision again, letting them go again. That's powerful, you know. Mm -hmm. To me, that's coaching because th these players are artists, man. They're they're yes. they're so gifted at this level, especially. And you know, if you're if you're going to call every play and try to orchestrate everything, you're overthinking things and you're not letting the players be who they really are. The way Phil handled Dennis was was genius. Um the first year was uh was incredible because you know, Dennis was so excited to be part of the of the team and he was so different, but he connected um, with guys in, a, in, in strange ways. Like he wouldn't say anything for a week, um, <laughs> you know, but you, you've like there was this energy from him that, he, you know what, that's a good dude. Like he just you could tell he had a good soul and he, he so he was vulnerable in that way. Like he allowed you to see his soul and what he was about, um, but he didn't communicate a whole lot. So you, you had to. You had to understand him and get to know him a little bit. Beautiful mind. Um, 97 finals, uh, MJ flu game, his amazing game. And then you hit the game winner in game six. How did your life change after that? I think in some ways it was, uh, it was validation that I belonged. You know, you asked that question earlier. When did, when did I feel like I belonged? Maybe that's the answer. Maybe it took that long. I think that was maybe my 10th year in the league. But, you know, I hadn't hit many big shots before that. And so hitting that shot felt like I actually belong here. I had to prove it to myself, but I had to prove right. it to other people also. And then it, it also led to another contract. You know, I, my, I was a free agent, uh, couple of years later and the Spurs 
gave me a five-year contract, which was the most mm. money I ever made in my career, which allowed me to buy a house in San Diego and, and you know, take care of my family. And so it changed it changed a lot of things. I think hitting that shot probably got me my job in TV, you know, because playing for the Bulls and having a big moment took me from a place of relative obscurity to, oh, we know that guy. And, you right. know, well, so that season, that those years in Chicago and hitting that shot, it all added up to kind of giving me a boost um, to another another level in my own career and life. I love it. Now, obviously, with the last dance, you know, the, you guys won your third title in 98. Seeing last dance, there was so much behind the scenes that obviously we didn't know. I don't know. I'm not sure if you guys were, but did you guys really feel like this was really going to be the last run? Or at any point, did you just think it was talk? Or when you guys knew that 98 season hit, you guys really knew it was going to be the last run? We knew it was done. We, really? we knew, yeah, we knew we were done. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's so funny because, you know, the last dance came on whenever it was. I guess it was June, July. So it came on and it finishes up. And, and after the 10th episode, I had, you know, all my friends are calling me and the media is asking me, you know, could you, could you, or why didn't, the, why didn't the Bulls keep the team together? You know, what was Reinsdorf thinking? Why didn't they just sign everybody and keep going? And I think that's the logical sort of thought. But it's never but the, that simple. It's never that simple. And and what I've what I've really realized, you know, coaching the Warriors and feeling feeling that pressure that you feel, from, you know, going to the finals you know, multiple years. In our case, five years in a row with the Warriors, with the Bulls, it was you know six times in eight years. I think there's an emotional toll that is so big that it's hard for people to understand that when a team loses its edge, its you know its energy, its motivation. Um, it's just over. And so people can say, you know, you got, if you guys had come back or, you know, if Michael hadn't left for baseball, you would have won eight championships in a row. I call bullshit. Like it's mm. just, you know, there's just no way. There's no way. We, we, there was too much fatigue and it ended for a reason. It was supposed to end. It was just, that was the time. Speaking out on that as a player and what you saw and what you felt, did you feel that with this? current team did you feel like you guys had had done obviously injuries played a huge part kind of in, in, in you guys is not winning again but did you feel like because we're in a different era now so everything is publicized small arguments don't stay in the locker room criticisms right. don't stay in the locker room everything is for public consumption now so did you feel as a coach what you felt as a player in chicago at all in that golden state organization or locker room so to speak i did um I, I could feel it a little bit, you know, the, the last year when we lost to Toronto in the finals. Um, it, it was a different type season. You know, we, um, we could just feel um, the, the connection wasn't as powerful. Um, and it was just human nature. You know, the, um, there's nothing like the climb. The climb is the best, yes. the best part, yes. you know. You get to the top and you got to start over again. That's that's you know it's pretty hard, but it's worth the climb. But you you, you try you got to make that climb three, four, mm. five times. Mm -hmm. It's exhausting. So we felt that exhaustion. Um, I thought last year, Draymond, Steph, and Clay desperately needed to get away, and unfortunately, it took really horrible circumstances um, 
for Draymond or for uh, for Steph and Clay with uh, season-ending injuries. Even Kevin Durant, you know, after three straight years of going to the finals, um, you know, uh, I think he probably needed uh, a rest. And uh, I hated that it happened the way it did with his injury. But, you know, making these runs, to me, that's why what what LeBron has done. Uh, incredible. Going, it, it makes no sense. It makes people no sense. People don't understand, and I think obviously because you played and you were a coach, people don't understand the mental drain it takes on your body, on your yeah. family, on everyone around you as well. Because like I said, it, it from the outside looking in, oh, you keep KD and you guys keep running, or Mike doesn't go play baseball and you guys, it's never that simple. Mm. It's it, it's so, it's such an emotional roller coaster. I mean, and not to mention the physical grind, but the mental grind mm -hmm. is just as tough, if not tougher than that actual physical grind. Yeah, and, and while you're going through that grind, there's four or five other teams that are on the climb Yep. that are incredibly motivated, that have been building their teams specifically to beat you yep. and that can't wait to play you. And, uh, and you're, so you're, you're already exhausted and now you see these people climbing below you trying to pull your leg down. You're like, leave me alone. Yeah. You know, so it's, yeah. uh, it's exhausting. So, you know, yeah. 10, 10 finals appearances for LeBron, but I think if I'm not mistaken, this this is nine out of the last ten years, right? That he will be mm -hmm. in, the in the finals. That's insane. That's mm -hmm. insane. Yeah. And you you guys had a lot to do with his record in the finals too. <laughs> but you well, back he, to uh, your yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, he he got us. He got our best he team. Did. You know, the, the, yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the seventy three win team was. Yeah. Uh, you know, not our most talented team, but uh, you know that that team was. Steamrolled through everybody, and then and then they got us. So that one stung. We're gonna get to the to, to the Warriors, but I want to continue with what you had going on. So you leave a '98. MJ retires. Scotty goes to Houston. If I'm not mistaken, you guys you go to San Antonio. You guys win that next shortened year, correct? With a, a yeah. veteran David Robinson and a, and a very young Tim Duncan. You landed on your feet. You leave a you leave a three P and you go to to, <laughs> to, to pop in the Spurs and you yeah. keep the train going. What was that like? Yeah, it was really weird because it was a lockout season, as you mentioned, 50-game season. Um, you know, Pop wasn't Pop yet. He was maybe in his third year coaching. I didn't really know anything about him. Um, but to go there and to immediately be part of a championship team was um, kind of crazy, you know. Um, I felt like I just sort of fell off of a train and landed on a bandwagon and, you know, they handed me a trophy and I was like, okay, here we go again. Like <laughs> it was, it was really bizarre. Um, but I, I think the, um, the experience that I had in San Antonio, even though I didn't play a ton, uh, I, I made a much bigger impact in Chicago than I did in San Antonio on the court. But what I learned in San Antonio has been so important for me in my coaching career mm. and, uh, and, and playing with such incredible guys. Tim Duncan is as good a, a teammate as there is uh, on earth. And, and uh, to go through that experience was, uh, was remarkable given that I had just been granted the opportunity to play with Michael Jordan and the, and the Bulls. So right. I've been... I've lived right. I've lived right. Absolutely. So after that, you head to Portland, and then you come back and get your fifth ring. Um, you know, my colleague was a part of that team as well. You guys both hit big shots to help secure your fifth ring, and that was your final season. What made you say it's time? Well, I was 37, and um, 
my knees were probably my last three years playing. Um, my knees were really hurting, and I was popping Vioxx, you know, just to feel capable of, you know, moving the way I wanted to move. And it, it was so frustrating, you know, not that I was ever very quick or fast, but, you know, you want to feel your best to right. be able to play. And uh, so when you get old, and you, you probably remember this, you know, at the tail end of your career, you, you know, one day you feel 25 and the next day you feel mm -hmm. 38 and you can't figure yeah. out why or you know you get banged up and when you're young you know exactly why you you're banged up and you get older and you get out of bed and you go why does my left hip hurt you right. know and and so that three years of that 37 we won the championship in in 03 it was just time it felt right yeah no i felt that to the extreme you know i came i was 37 with my my final year with you guys and it pissed mm -hmm. me off because a sprained ankle had never taken me out like i'd sprain mm -hmm. my ankle and i'd mm -hmm. always bounce right back but this sprained ankle was the sprained ankle of them all and it just yeah. wouldn't heal and by the time and i tell people you know obviously i took in less money my whole entire career to get into a winning situation because i wanted to win and i finally get an opportunity to come to you guys when uh, unfortunately kd goes down i step in you know you insert me I, it was crazy so i'm at working my kids out demarcus we're i'm in sacramento the, the kings talk through me to get to demarcus all the time so they're reassuring me the whole time they're not trading demarcus oh he's good he's you know we're a half a game a game and a half out of the playoffs he's good. He's not going nowhere. We're going to make this playoff run. We're going to play the Warriors in the first round. So we have this whole game plan for Sacramento in the first year in our new arena. All-star break hits and DeMarcus gets traded while he's on the podium asking questions. And I'm like, what the fuck? You guys have just been telling mm. me for the last three weeks to a month he's not going nowhere. So DeMarcus gets traded. Fast forward, I talked to Vladi. I'm like, Vladi, I'm too old to try to rebuild. You know, I need to try to yeah. win. And he understood. He let me go. KD goes down. I get an opportunity to come in. And I, when I tell you, like, I wasn't, I went from being at KFC one night to talking to you on the phone because I just got done working the Twins. I was like, you're like, hey, we need you in Chicago. I'm like, holy <laughs> shit. I catch a flight the next day and then get to Chicago and I play 25 minutes. I'm like, oh, shit, I'm, I'm back in the NBA. Let's go. Yeah. You know, yeah. so for that opportunity to arise and then... KD comes back and I get hurt the game, KD. So I never, people don't know, like I never got a chance to play with KD. Like we were on the same yeah, team, but he was right. hurt. And then he, the first game back, I got hurt. And then I would played sparingly in the playoffs. So, but the back to your point, I couldn't get over that sprained ankle. And a sprain, I'm a football player. I played through everything and that fucking sprained yeah. ankle wouldn't get better. So it was just, yeah. it, it was, it was humbling. And, and, you know, we got a chance to win it, to win a ring as a, as a team. And it was a tremendous opportunity, but I was just like, it's getting time. And, 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 you know, and that's why I wanted to ask, like, it was mm -hmm. my 14th year. It was your 15th year. Like when you start listening to your body, could I have played a couple more years? Probably. But I was just, I was ready to see what was next in my life. And, and obviously, you know, you felt a similar way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but but how lucky are we to make it that far Man, so that we, we where we could actually say, okay, we know now it's time. Most yeah. players, they Don't their have careers that luxury. end before before that. I have to tell one quick story just for your mm -hmm. listeners because it's one of my favorite NBA stories um, from coaching. But you know, one of the things you know that that I believe as a, as a coach and and I really learned this from Pop was you know involving family members um, in anything that you can <laughs> with the, with team stuff is uh, is really fun. It's it's just you know so we always invite guys to bring their kids their families on the plane if they want. And, and so you, you probably know where I'm going with this, but yeah. uh, we had, we had, so we had a game in, in San Antonio and uh, we were staying out in the, the hill country, the Hyatt. Uh, we have a breakfast meeting 
and you bring your boys to the breakfast meeting, the twins, and everybody's having breakfast. And then, you know, we're going to get the meeting started. And you, you were like, coach, should I send the kids back? I was like, no, no, they're good. They're good. And so there's, and they're, they're hoopers, right? They're at the time, they were probably, I'm guessing eight years old, seven years old. Seven or eight. Yep. Seven or eight. So they would, you know, they'd shoot around before practice and stuff and they're hoopers. They love this stuff. Mm -hmm. So it was Mike Brown's scout. So I said, Mike, uh, why don't you go through the, through the matchups? And, um, he goes, all right, um, we're going to change the starting lineup. You hadn't started the previous game. And I'm sitting in the back just observing. So you're kind of sitting right in front of me with your boys. Mike Brown's beyond that. So Mike gets up. He goes, all right, we're going we're gonna to start. Tonight we're going to start Steph, Clay, uh, Matt. You're going to start at the three, and you're going to guard Kawhi. And your boys, the twins, get up, <laughs> and they start going. They start pumping their fists. They're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was one of my all-time yeah. fav- favorite moments because that's really, you know, ultimately that's what it's about. You know, right. you want to be able to enjoy everything with your family. And how Absolutely. cool is that? Like, you know, there were your boys watching this team meeting and, hell yeah, dad's starting tonight. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was that was the best experience, obviously, for me to be able to come to a team like that and, and just see how you were able to manage so many different stars and egos and personality and, and come along for the common goal. But outside of that, the kids' ride was the best time. Like the chance that the, the, the people don't know, like the kids flew on the plane. They were in the locker room. They were in our pregame breakfast meetings. Like you couldn't tell these guys they weren't on the Warriors. You know what I mean? One right, game you right. let them. <laughs> I want to say we were in the Western Finals against Houston, if I'm not mistaken, or, or and they're shooting with Steph and KD at the end of practice, like shooting three, and like they're just blowing away. And so when we finally won the championship, like you, the twins were up. I was sitting in the back, just kind of taking it all in. The twins are in the front row. Yeah, they're in the front, trying to, tr- trying to hold. The, <laughs> KD got the MVP trophy. They wanted to hold that. Steph got the championship <laughs> trophy. They were trying. Like you couldn't tell the twins that they weren't a part of that team. So that's why that's I wanted to make sure that you know when I came back and got my ring, I got them rings. And like, you, yeah, these yeah. kids were on cloud nine. So I, I really <laughs> owe. I really personally, I never really. I, I thanked you, but I never got a chance to really thank you because, like you said, that, that was uh, to me that was a perfect ex on like my kids got to see me play my kids got to be a part of this special team it was their favorite team and then for them to kind of get rings when dad got rings it was just a perfect time to say goodbye and i really owe a lot of that to Mm. you and obviously the warriors organization for accepting me back so thank you very much for that coach i really appreciate that well i appreciate the compliment and and um and i'll just say it was a pleasure to to coach you just your your competitiveness and and your toughness was was important in our locker room and and um you know the the uh, the joy that the twins brought every day was was great stuff and and zaza's kids would come in and yep. uh you know sometimes we, the kids would be having like a three on three game between uh, david right. west's son and yep. and so we had uh we had a good group but but i really learned that from pop you know um pop was the first coach i ever had who invited family on the plane and so i remember taking my 5 year old son my oldest uh on a road trip and then a few weeks later my 3 year old daughter on a road trip. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was so excited because she's like, you know, we get to sleep in the hotel. It's like, yeah. And she's like, oh, we're going to get room service. We're going to watch a movie. She's like, this is going to be the best, best night of my life. You know, and it's like, <laughs> I'll never forget that. And so for Pop to understand that as a coach, like how, how much that meant to me, it meant it was so powerful that it, it was, it became a no brainer for me when I became coach that got to give the players that right. joy of seeing their kids in, in the same environment. It's, a, yeah. it's an amazing feeling. 
That's one thing that, that, that people don't understand is, is, is championship teams are built at the top and it's the little things like that. Obviously, you need everything to be aligned and you need plenty of luck, but it starts at top with management. And, and when I tell people when I play for the Warriors, you guys literally took care, you guys take care of all the players on your team have to do is obviously fall in line and, and you know stay ready. But all you have to do is worry about basketball. You guys take care of family. You guys take care of friends. You guys make it such a warm family environment that, like, we, you want to go run through a wall for an organization like that because I played for the Clippers my first year, and we were practicing at a junior college where we had to keep the back door open to make sure people didn't break into our cars. You know what I mean? It's just like little <laughs> shit. There's levels to this, and I think you guys did such an amazing job of just all you guys have to do is go out and focus on basketball. We got everything right. else. And then, you know, you guys got rings for that. But back to you, retiring from the game, you, you step into the broadcast booth and then you step into the front office of Phoenix during their runs. What, what was that transition like from obviously playing? I don't know if you knew you wanted to be a coach. You went to the front office first, but what was that change from being a player to moving into the front office and kind of managing things behind the scenes? Well, I had a bridge, you know, doing TV for about four years before I got into management. And it was important for me to kind of step away from the grind. And uh, so the TV gig with TNT was an incredible time in my life, you know, to be with my family at home. And then I'd fly off and do one game a week. So it was kind of perfect. You know, I got just enough time away to keep my wife happy. So I was out of the house for a couple of days, <laughs> but plenty of time at home to right. do the things I wanted to do. And, and then after about four years, I just started feeling that itch to compete and, and to be involved. And I had this opportunity in Phoenix and and I took it, but I, you know, I was GM for three years, but I, um, I knew deep in my heart that I wanted to coach and I didn't love being a GM. You know, I like being on the court. I like mm. being with the players and I like the highs and lows of, of winning and losing. Like if you're right in the thick of it, rather than watching from above and trying to make more big picture decisions. I'd rather be in the fight. Mm -hmm. So it was fun to watch the team. We had a hell of a team. You were part of it, you mm -hmm. know, with, with Nash and, and Grant Hill. And An older Shaq. Older Shaq, by the, yeah. yeah, by that time. And we had a couple of good runs, but it was not a job that I excelled at. I was not a great GM, to be honest with you. Correct me if I'm wrong. You were broadcasting during our We Believe times, right? Didn't you, weren't you broadcasting yeah. uh, when we were playing Dallas? Yeah, I did the final game. So... How loud was that arena? Because I tried to tell people, because I went back for the championship and we were fortunate enough to be on that team, but I still felt like those We Believe crowds were the loudest crowds I've ever been a part of. Yeah, I agree. I, I've told people that many times that game six against Dallas, the closeout game was the loudest arena I've ever heard in my life. It was insane. It felt like they were shaking the arena. Like we came out to warm yeah. up and, and the stands were already full. Like normally when you go out to warm up, no one's really out there yet. You know, like when individual players, yeah. the, the second they opened the door, the arena was filled and they were all standing. As soon as we came out there for like the real team warm ups, like you, it was, there was an electricity in there and there was, we knew we were going to blow them out. Like mm -hmm. that home fan base was tremendous. You know, obviously transitioning to becoming the Warriors coach, but I kind of wanted to jump ahead a little bit. Obviously, having to leave the history of Oakland and Oracle behind and transitioning to, obviously, the amazing uh, venue you guys have in San Francisco, what do you miss about 
those Oracle crowds. I always loved Oracle, even going way back to when I was a player. There was just this energy in that building that didn't exist in, in every NBA arena. Certain arenas that just feel special, uh, certain crowds that seem to know the game and love the game. The Garden in New York feels that way to me. You know, despite the, the struggles of the teams over the last uh, couple decades, it's still special to go into the Garden. There's a sense that that there's a real basketball history and, and that the fans know the game. And that's how I always felt coming into Oracle. Going mm-hmm. to Toronto, same way. There's this energy in the crowd in Toronto that's really electric. fun to be a part of. Yeah, it's electric. Yeah. Seattle, yeah. the Sonics, yeah. when you know playing the old Sonics mm-hmm. teams at Key was amazing. So Oracle's always been a special place. And then obviously to have the run that we did and get to the finals and, and you know win a championship at home in 17 and just feeling that energy and the, the joy of the fans was really amazing. That's special. So head coach of Golden State, your first crack, um, replacing Mark Jackson. What was your philosophy and, and expectations, obviously coming into with a new young team? You start with two core stars, and then you find out, you know, Draymond works itself into being a star. Mm-hmm. What were some of the ups and downs with that young warrior team, and how did you feel like you earned their trust? Well, I think our whole focus coming in was, was let's uh, respect what Mark has already built and what the team has already built. That was what 14-15 was our first year. They had the Warriors had been in the playoffs the previous couple of years. They had a top 4 defense in the league uh the previous year uh when when I became coach. So I'm looking at it I'm like this is a gold mine. You know, this this team is ready to win. They've mm-hmm. already they've already become a, a a damn good team. And so let's honor that. Let's respect that and and that was our whole approach in, camp, our approach in camp was we're not coming in here to reinvent the wheel. We're coming in to help you with the foundation that you guys have already built and let's grow it. Let's get better from here. That was important because the players liked Mark and had great respect for him and he had done an amazing job. He deserved the credit that he had been given. It was controversial when he was let go. So I, I thought that was the main thing we tried to do was just, hey, let's keep building this thing. And, and here's a few areas we're watching on tape. We think we can get better. But other than that, like, let's let's keep rolling. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had Steph on the first season of the show, and he said he personally felt like the first one was the best one for him. What was that first journey like? You know, obviously you being there as a player, you walk into an amazing situation. 15, you guys get there. What was that first one like for you as a coach? Honestly, um, it, it in terms of basketball, and I've had a lot of, uh, amazing moments in my career and been on championship teams, but clinching game six in Cleveland and, and as a head coach might have been the best feeling that I've wow. ever had in basketball because wow. uh, it's different. It's different. Like a lot of times as a player, I was on those teams. I was a reserve. I might have had a good game here or there, and but I didn't. I it wasn't me. I, I wasn't, you know, the one winning the championship, you know, as a player. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you become a coach, it's, it's even more so pronounced because you never touch the floor, right? You never take a shot. You never get a rebound. But what you do feel is this responsibility to the group that you're trying to help them win a championship. Right. And so mm-hmm. as a coach, it's a different vibe. Like you, you didn't, you didn't do anything yourself, but this group that you're in charge of, uh, has accomplished their goal. And that's a special feeling you know, in any kind of leadership role when, when 
the group you're in charge of has that success, it was probably the most gratifying moment of my, my whole career. See, that's that's cool. And obviously, I felt it on a much smaller scale, but, you know, coaching the Twins now, and we have one of the top teams in the country, and seeing their excitement when they start to get stuff and understand. And, you know, we run similar offenses to what you guys do, and I tell them every single night, the Warriors are going to get everyone's best shot. You know, that's the same with my team, because I coach them, and everyone knows the Twins now. Every single night, you have to understand how to play with a target on your back. You, There's no let-ups, there's no... But when we finally start winning these championships, and we see, I think we're number eight or number nine in the whole country right now, at 12 years old, you know what I mean? But to see their excitement and know that I am i don't shoot, I don't play defense, I don't do nothing on that court, but I'm helping them achieve their goals. So I can only imagine on the highest level, which is the NBA, the excitement uh, an opportunity like that would bring for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's nothing like playing basketball. You know, once you're done, you can't uh, play anymore. To be involved as a coach, to me, is the next best thing. But winning mm-hmm. a championship as a coach is a feeling you can't describe because you, you just feel responsible for so many people, right. you know that so much can go wrong. And if it does go wrong, you feel responsible for that too. Absolutely. But when everything clicks and, and as it did it's that first feeling. year... Oh, man, it's amazing. It's a special feeling. How do you feel like your experience as a player with your 72 and 10 team, we touched on this earlier, and then the experience coaching the 73 and 9 team prepared you for that? And did you see any similarities, differences, the pressure night in, night out? And like I just said a minute ago, it didn't matter who you guys were playing every single night you were going to get their best shot and that shit alone is draining mm. mentally and physically. So what was it like obviously being a part of it, a player and then coaching a team that surpassed a record that no one ever thought would be touched? Yeah, and I, I was maybe leading that charge thinking that nobody would ever beat 72. <laughs> you know, right. having been through it as a player, I was like, no way, right. no way. Ever. Right. But our guys came off that championship in 15 and they were so confident. You know, that's one thing when you win a championship, there's a deeper level of confidence that you now have. That year, I think we hadn't gotten to the stage of fatigue yet. It was more excitement of, oh my God, we're the best team in the NBA. We're the best team in the world. This right. is fun, you know? And uh, so that was the similarity, just this this vibe of, you know, nobody can touch us, you know, let's go dominate. And um, so I didn't really have to to say a whole lot. It was, you know, just just let them, let them go. Um, the only mm-hmm. thing I tried to do was, you know, down the stretch, you know, talk about, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to do anything stupid. You know, we're not going to go and push you guys 44, 46 minutes in a game, right. you know, in order to chase a win that we don't actually have to have. And I tried to, tried to play it, you know, pretty conservatively and and for the most part, we did. Our minute totals were were pretty low that year, but uh, you know there was there was definitely a feeling of of you know nervousness that uh, you know somebody would get injured and the whole thing would go off mm. off track. Yes. So uh, falling short in sixteen that season, uh, LeBron and the Cavs got you guys to then landing one of the biggest free agent signings in the history of the game, uh, picking up Kevin Durant and. It was just like, let's go. What was it like knowing that, I mean, obviously there was a bunch of talks when it finally happened, knowing that you're going to be able to add one of the greatest players we've seen to an already 
amazing team. Yeah, and, and not not just an amazing player, but a, a player who was going to fit in perfectly with the way we already played. You know this. I mean, Draymond Green has led us in assists for like five years in a row. He's our starting power forward. So we just play basketball and and everybody makes plays. And watching Kevin over the years um, in Oklahoma City, the most skilled guy in the league in terms of shooting, passing, uh, versatility, shot blocking. Like it was going to be such a seamless fit because of he was not ball dominant you know he didn't Mm -hmm. he didn't have to have the ball in his hands all the time and of course neither did Steph they were both perfectly willing to play off the ball so it was pretty incredible to watch that group together one of the best teams in the history of the game one of the most talented and to, to watch them on the floor when when we were really clicking was just beautiful special absolutely special 17 you get a ring 18 and then how hard was it you know you guys are at the top of the hill and you've been there as a player you know how mentally draining it is physically draining it is how hard was it to see you guys go for that three-peat in 19 and then guys start to get injured yeah i think you know you, you sort of feel it you know, if you're in the league long enough every year injuries play a role when we won our first title in 15 kevin love and kyrie irving were both yep. out mm-hmm. so we'd been on the other end of it too so the, you know you just sort of go into it as a coach or as a player and you understand that sometimes things don't go well sometimes they do and you regardless you just have to respond and play your best and I was uh, as proud of that 19 team as I was of any of our championship teams just from the standpoint of they fought they fought Absolutely. and, and uh, almost took it to seven you know mm-hmm. um, if Clay doesn't doesn't tear his ACL. I think you guys uh, still win if Clay doesn't get hurt. I mean, yeah, that's just I mean, my I, personal I, opinion. I, I think we win that game six because mm-hmm. Clay was Clay was on fire. Smoking. He's rolling. We're at home, and and if it goes seven, who knows? And and mm-hmm. so, uh, but Toronto was great, and they deserved it. And and mm-hmm. um, great respect for for their team and, and their coaching staff, and they were fantastic. Um, yes. But I walked away from that series as proud of our group as 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 uh, any group that that I've ever been around they were they were amazing they were awesome yeah. speaking of that that series how hard was it managing kevin wanting to come back but still you guys trying to be cautious as you possibly can managing you know obviously his injury and and knowing how many years he still had to play how hard of a coaching decision, management decision, doctor decision, his decision, did that play with you guys? Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a really tricky situation. Um, and what, what we tried to do was um, just make sure we covered all our bases and, and tr- trust our training staff, trust the, the surgeon, and then also bring in, you know, Kevin's own medical people and make sure that everybody was good with him playing before we put him out there. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in hindsight, um, I wish we hadn't because now we know what what happened. He right. tore tore his ACL. I mean, uh, he tore Achilles. his, his uh, Achilles, and and so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think we we I think we handled it the the way we thought um, was was the best way with with. You know, Kevin and his representation and their their own medical team putting their heads together with with our group. We felt like we were, you know, in the clear, but it was it was a it was a stark reminder that, um, you know, medicine is not necessarily math. You know, it's not just a either yes or no. There's a gray area in everything. 
And uh, so when Kevin went down, I was just, my first thought was, oh man, he, he uh, re-injured his calf. And, um, you know, the thought was, you know, what a bummer. He's put in all this work and, mm-hmm. and there's the, there goes the calf. And it didn't, it didn't hit me until we walked in at halftime. And I saw everybody's faces. I saw the doctors. I saw our trainer. And I saw Kevin. I was like, oh, shit. Like, this, this was an Achilles. Mm. And um, it's devastating. And, and, you know, it was, um, Kevin was heroic in, in terms of, you know, trying to be out there on the floor with his teammates. Um, he got off to and, a great start, too. He came out oh, that he was game amazing. cooking. Oh, he was cooking. cooking. You know, he, he, was, he was on fire right away. And, and, mm-hmm. um, Seemed like everything was good, and um, but it's yeah, it's one of those ones that that we'll forever look back on and and go. You know what? Um, we we wish we could have that one back, but um, not mm-hmm. not from a not from a process standpoint. I think the process we handled um, in the right way, but I think I learned from that, and that um, even if the process is sound. Um, you know, just go overboard. Just go overboard Absolutely. and don't. You know, you, you, I I would love to have that one back. And and but again, hindsight's twenty twenty. What's up? I'm John Wall and I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Six Man of the Year elite bucket getter let's please welcome jamal crawford to point game king of the court one-on-one tournament if they had it back in your prime do you think you could have took it all i'm gonna be honest with you i don't think i could have took it all but i think i would have shocked a lot of people i think kobe and everybody in their prime kobe would win a one-on-one contest yeah yeah because you gotta think he's gonna guard he don't care about guarding He's going to guard. He's going to exactly. guard. Like, you see him in the Olympics, he's going to guard. And then on I'm top of that. I'm not like that, see that. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Cassell to Point Game. I remember you came to my room crying, tears, <laughs> crying. I mean, he was in a culture shock. He's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember what I told you? I said, I said, OG, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college because he didn't need it. <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic, so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. All right, we're with the home stretch right now, almost finished up. Um, Kevin decides that he wants to leave. How did that hit you personally? Obviously, as a coach, you know the business, but how did, how did the organization feel when he felt it was time for him to uh, move on? 
Didn't it didn't surprise us? We all had a sense that Kevin probably looking to move on and and take on a new challenge. He'd been here three years and won two championships and been Finals MVP twice. And it was just for in his own personal career, it was time for a new challenge. And and mm-hmm. we all totally respected that. You know, I always feel like players should control their own destiny and especially through free agency and mm-hmm. you know once your contract's up every every player has the right to go wherever he wants and and so there were no hard feelings at all in fact it was the opposite it's like man thank you for thank you for right. everything you've done you you mm-hmm. you helped bring us two championships and almost another one and and you brought an incredible amount of joy to Oracle every night and our fans got to watch one of the best basketball teams on earth my feeling was thank you and and good luck and you know, get healthy. Yeah, absolutely. So you came into the coaching space a lot luckier than most coaches. So you came in, <laughs> yeah. you won a championship your first year, you have a hell of a five-year run. Last year, a little bit of reality sets in. You know, you guys go to a new arena, there's a lot of excitement, play's already hurt. Uh, Steph ends up going down. So it kind of becomes a development year. And I was talking to Draymond a lot that season, like, hey, man, keep your head. I, I, I can yeah. see you're about to snap. You know, what was it like <laughs> coming in at the highest level and winning and having that run and then kind of coming back down to earth last season? And, and, you know, your two stars are out. Draymond is still in, but just a really a season of developing these young guys. It was a slap in the face for sure. The injuries to... Um to Steph and Clay were just killers. Obviously, you're ta- you're talking about you know two of the best guards in the league and probably the two best shooters in the world. So, you know, when Steph went down in the third or fourth game, whatever it was, it was apparent pretty quickly. Like this is this is now a development year. We got to play these young guys and try to help them get better. And um, you know, a little perspective is uh, is usually what happens uh, in life. You know, nobody nobody gets to win every year, and um, so we had we had been on this incredible run, and it was, now it was our turn to get smacked in the face, and uh-huh. and uh, now it's time to get up off the mat and see if we can, uh, yeah. you know, get have another run in us. We'll see. I, I think obviously you don't like to ever see anyone get hurt, but I think it was needed. You know what I mean? You guys had such a tremendous run. I think Dre, Clay, and and Steph needed a break. Yeah. I mean, those guys are probably in that five year span probably played more minutes possibly than you know some of the guys in NBA history as far as a five year span. So those guys went on a hell of a run, well rested. So I think I speak for all of us when we say we're excited to see what you guys come back with. I'm gonna hit you with a couple quick hitters and we'll be done. One player in your era you wish you would have got a chance to play with? Patrick Ewing. I loved oh. I, I loved Ewing's game and his Big compet- competitive desire. He was incredible. Thoughts on the 2020 Basketball Hall of Fame class? Arguably one of the greatest classes. You know, rest in peace, Kobe. Uh, but it, you know, you got a chance to play with a young Timmy and know him well, and then Kevin Garnett. I don't know my history well enough, but um, there there can't be many classes uh, more decorated than this one. Um, three three all time greats. Um, maybe the three best players of their uh, shared era, you know, mm-hmm. really, uh, when it comes down to it. But, um, yeah, that was uh, uh, devastating. You know, learning of Kobe's death was, a, you know, one of those moments that you, you'll remember your whole life because of the shock of it and, and feeling, feeling that shock with our whole team. Um, was devastating, and um, it still doesn't even seem real. Um, but you know, this this fall with uh, with 
Kobe and KG and Tim all going into the Hall of Fame together, it'll it'll feel, you know, from a basketball standpoint, it feels right. But the fact that Kobe is no longer with us, obviously, right. just takes takes it and completely skews everything. It still doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. Um, your thoughts on t- cannabis and CBD use of professional athletes? Well, it's funny because I spoke out about this a couple years ago. You know, I, I uh, had my own uh, uh, health issues with my back surgery that went wrong. And, and uh, so I spoke, I was getting prescribed all these opioids uh, constantly for pain. And, and, you know, I'd read about this stuff. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not taking this stuff, this Oxycontin or Vicodin mm-hmm. or whatever. And it just seems so insane. And so, you know, I was, uh, I spoke out about the, you know, that, that athletes should be allowed to use cannabis. And, uh, you know how we like to play music during our, our warmups mm-hmm. and practice. So I can't remember what song. There was some so- song about smoking dope or something. And so, <laughs> so our, our video guy puts that song on. JaVale McGee is running down laughing, looking at me like, like you know, like he's puffing. Uh-huh. Everybody's, cr- everybody's cracking up because I've made this statement. Meanwhile, I had literally tried it for my for my pain for my back stuff and had no success with it so and unfortunately it didn't work but because i spoke out on it all of a sudden like i got this reputation as as the pot guy like oh there's you know <laughs> my heart <"All> whatever <laughs> right the players took a they got a good kick out of it anyway so well i remember i mean i remember seeing you it hurt my heart because i remember when i was hurt in the portland series like how uncomfortable you would lay for a second you would sit for a second you would have to stand up for a second and you would lay for a second i'm just like i can't imagine what you were going through through that time and and i was to the point where i didn't want to cross player coach boundaries but i was gonna say coach let me go in my bag real quick i got something for you but it was you know it was a little i think i was a little bit before my time but i mean i remember the pain you were in i particularly in portland i remember because i was in the yeah. locker room icing the whole time and you couldn't literally sit in the same position for more than two minutes like you would try to lay for a second you try to sit for a second you have to get up and stand then you would have to get up and walk around i was so close that day to being like coach I got a joint for you, man. It's going to change everything. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, last last question. Um, Historical, anybody, who are five people you would love to sit down and have dinner with, dead or alive? Oh, man. That's a really difficult question. That's a good question. It's a good way to end it. Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge sports fan. Growing up, I was was into every sport, and I suppose I would want to speak with some of the people who kind of laid the foundation for what sports are today. Jackie Robinson would Ooh. definitely be one. I would love to 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 hear his story, what it was really like. Um, and being, being such a big baseball uh, fan, um, Babe Ruth would be another. Like, you know, he, he was the he was the king and he was you know, the MJ of his era. And uh, so I would, I'd, from a ba- from the baseball world, those two guys, for sure. Um, from a historical standpoint, I don't know. This is a tough one because, you know, there's so much that, that, I, that I'm learning and that I want to learn about American history. And so you, you kind of want to go back in time to our founding fathers and Say how you know how can we how can we have these 
parallel universes of, uh, you know, pursuit of happiness, life and liberty. And, and here's this component of, of slavery, right? Um, how do you reconcile all that? Mm-hmm. Who would we ask about that? You know, Thomas mm. Jefferson, you know, I know Jefferson had, he owned slaves, right? Um, right. And he helped write the Constitution. And I think going back in time during the course of history, there are a lot of questions about this country that, that I would want to ask. And, uh, you know, probably probably starting with with uh, with the people who were, who were putting the, putting it all in place and mm-hmm. you know what was what was what was the thought process and um, I don't know that's only three I've only given you three two more I got to give you two more don't I mm-hmm. I'm, what I'm doing is I'm showing you how limited my outside uh, <laughs> activities and interests are all I right. should be naming like some artists or musicians no or, not at all no this know, is this is your this is your dinner table. <laughs> This, this is my so who, this is my show. Whoever, whoever you want, yeah, yeah. Probably Lincoln for that reason, you know, President okay. Lincoln um, mm-hmm. for that very reason because he would be able to bridge the education gap between what happened in uh, you know late 1700s with the founding of our country to all the way up to the Civil War. Like, I'd love to hear that that conversation and that viewpoint. And then um, who gets the last seat at your table? Last seat. I'll give you one that's a little offbeat, but James Baldwin, uh, the author. Okay. I just read a fascinating book about him called Begin Again and by a, a, a writer named Eddie Gloud. It's a beautiful book. And Baldwin had the most unique look at the civil rights era because of his proximity to it and his brilliance as a writer and his friendship with so many of the key figures. He was so deep and powerful as a human being, just his humanity, knowing his story and learning his story um, has been um, really, really powerful. If you get a chance, um, there's a documentary about him. Well, the the book is called Begin Again. Begin Again. Where is it? There we go. Here's the book. Brilliant book. Okay. Begin Again by uh, Eddie Gloud. He's a professor at at Princeton. Um, But there's a documentary about about James Baldwin that I highly recommend. It's, It's called I Am Not Your Negro. And it's about his relationship with Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Dr. King during the civil rights era. And all three men were murdered. Mm-hmm. And Baldwin Baldwin was writing throughout the 60s about the civil rights era. And here he's watching this great hope that he has for his country. And then these hopes are violently turned back. And his own evolution as a writer, as a human being, and what he went through as a black American, it's powerful stuff. And uh, one of the key figures during the civil rights movement who our young people should should read more about and read his definitely. his his stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I put it in my notes as you were speaking, so I'm definitely going to check it out. Coach Kerr, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's an honor to have you sit down. 
Good luck this season. We're excited to see what a well-rested uh, Golden State Warriors team looks like in uh, 20, 2021. Thank you, Matt. That was really fun. You're doing a great job. And I uh, always enjoy hearing hearing from you and say hi to the, the boys. You have a new... You have a new son, right, Ashton? I got a little one. Yeah, I got Ash. Ashton's 22 months. Yeah, little man. So I started all over. So it's been a blast. Oh man, oh, man. I'll bet he. I'll bet he's uh, beloved by those twins. They probably take good care of him. This guy runs the house already at 22 months. I'm in trouble. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. Thanks for having me. That was great. Really appreciate it. That's a wrap. All the smoke. You can catch us on Showtime Basketball YouTube and the iHeart platform. This is All a Smoke, a production of The Black Effect and iHeartRadio in partnership with Showtime. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories.